Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, which means that this is part 2 of our study of the verses that Mike read, verses 10 through 18, as we continue here at Christ the King in our sermon series from the book of Hebrews. I encourage you every week, and do so again, to keep your Bibles open to the text that you might go with me as we look at it, that you would be able to better see what we're looking at together. I recognize that uh, it is a challenge to be working through Hebrews, even moving at the pace that we are, which is not as slow as we could go by any stretch, but even at the pace we are moving, we're not covering all details. I, I want to say that's not my goal. Um, my goal is to cover what, we, what I think we need to within each section of Hebrews to understand the flow of thought in the text. I, I want, above all, as your pastor, for you to understand the point, the message that the pastor who wrote Hebrews was making in every section of the sermon so that... As the pastor's message becomes clear, the Holy Spirit who inspired that pastor will also use those thoughts and apply them to our own lives today. That's my goal. That's, that's what we're doing. And I say that as something I hope is helpful to keep in mind now as we try this morning to step into uh, what is a rich but definitely complex argument in Hebrews chapter 2. This is a, a section that began two weeks ago for us in verse 5. It ends in verse 18 this morning. Next week we turn a bit of a corner into chapter 3 and we'll say more about that then. I, I'm going to organize the thoughts of my sermon this way. It's a little different than what I normally do. Rather than trying to move sequentially just verse by verse through these, this text that we have, I, I want to try and focus in on verse 16 and use verse 16 uh, to guide what we say, what we study, and, and try to find out regarding the rest of the passage. So look there at verse 16, if you would. It's the center of the text that we're considering this morning. The pastor says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, I think you just try to understand that Verse and what comes with that then is a check to make sure that we've been understanding at least well enough what's been going on in Hebrews chapter 2, since verse 5 at least. At the same time as looking just at verse 16 will help us, I hope, in considering the other verses that are around it this morning in, in our passage. So if my sermon had a title, which my sermons don't have as a rule, but if it did, it would be, he helps the offspring of Abraham. So, I want to just ask the classic questions about that. I want to ask who and what and where and when and why. The five W's, right? So that first, I'm thinking, who, from that verse, who is he and who are, who are the offspring of Abraham? And then second, if we sort that out, what is the help that he offers? 
the offspring of Abraham? What does he do to help them? Or we could ask it this way, what help did they need? Then thirdly, though, we won't get to three and four until the very tail end of this time, and I'll squeeze them in at the end. But the third question will be together considering the, the when and the where question. Where and when is it that this help is offered? And then finally, fourthly, what can we say, if anything, about why he offers this help to the offspring of Abraham? So that's how I want to try it this morning. A little different than what we normally do. He helps the offspring of Abraham. So my first question is, who is he? And then who are the offspring of Abraham? Now, maybe you just think it's obvious who he is. And it probably is to you. It's Jesus. But, well, maybe it's not so obvious because you actually have to go all the way back to verse 9 of the chapter to find that stated explicitly. You just work backwards from where we are here in verse 16 and... You find in verse 14, two references to he again, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. You got to back up to verse 11 there. There you have again in verse 11 for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You have to keep going backwards to figure out who this is. You go to verse 10, but then verse 10 is tricky. Because verse 10 starts with he, but it's not the same he as the one that you've been tracing backwards from this point. It says in verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So that he in verse 10 is God, the one for whom and by whom all things exist and it says, God makes the founder, the pioneer, we said last week, of their salvation perfect. And we discussed how that one who is the founder is Jesus. Finally, then we know that that's Jesus because it's verse 9 where that identification is explicitly made. And really it's verse 9 that is the beginning of the whole, the whole run of thoughts up to the end of chapter 2. But we see him. The pastor writes in verse 9, Him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Just that verse summarizes almost all the content of what follows in this chapter. So that all the way from verse 9 through to verse 16, with the exception of that beginning of verse 10, the pastor is talking about Jesus. But we don't have to stop there. Because in the context of Hebrews, you've been with us. Who is it? Who's Jesus? Who is it that partook of the same things in verse 14? Who was made lower than the angels in verse 9? And of course, you know it's the Son. The one we started talking about several weeks ago, the one by whom, you go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 2, the one by whom God has spoken to us in these last days. The one who is, verse 3 of chapter 1 says, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one whose throne, verse 8 of chapter 1 says, is forever and ever. The one who sits, verse 13 says, 
chapter 1, at God's right hand in the heavenly realm. I mean, ultimately the he of, he helps the offspring of Abraham, verse 16 of chapter 2, who is it? It's the son. In chapter 1, the pastor is focusing our attention on the son's divinity. In chapter 2, the focus is on the son's humanity as Jesus. He is the son who has taken on flesh and blood. It's the son as Jesus who helps the offspring of Abraham. So who are they? Who are the offspring of Abraham? I mean, why is the son doing this? <laughs> I mean, Abraham's not been mentioned yet by name in the sermon, has he? What's he doing here? What people are we talking about? Well, again, to get started, we can begin looking around verse 16 and you look to the next verse in 17 and you see there it says the offspring of Abraham. They are the ones that are called in verse 17 Jesus' brothers or brothers and sisters. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That's following on our key verse. In every respect, the pastor says. That's who he's helping. Jesus' brothers and sisters are the offspring of Abraham. Okay, well, we started to think about that last week a little. Back up to verse 14. In verse 14, this group is called the children. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. What, what children are we talking about? Well, again, look up one line into verse 13. Jesus says, using the words of Isaiah 8, Behold, I and the children God has given me. So we begin to understand that the children of God are Jesus' brothers and sisters, and they are the offspring of Abraham. The fact that the children are Jesus' brothers and sisters is where we were last week in verse 11, where it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, made holy, by our high priest, as we'll learn today, all have one source, the pastor writes. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So last week I tried to say that I think the meaning there is that like Jesus, God is the father of these children. They are his children so that then in verse 12, the son, as Jesus says, using Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. So, you see, there's all this mapping of, of, of these groups together in this section of Hebrews. They're the brothers and sisters of Jesus, who are the children of God, whom it says God has given to Jesus. That's not a unique concept to Hebrews. Jesus talked like that. John chapter 17, verse 6 Jesus says, I have manifested your name, meaning God the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. John 17, verse 6. And they have kept your word, Jesus says. So, those whom God gave to Jesus are the offspring of Abraham. We're talking about the same group all the way through this part, chapter 2. That's what I'm trying to get you to see in the text. 
You could see all that in the text, but then you might still be legitimately asking, but why call them the offspring of Abraham then? What point is the pastor making by using that phrase to, return, to refer to these children whom God gave to Jesus? Well, that begins to move us towards the final question we'll try to answer this morning, the why question. Why does Jesus help the offspring of Abraham? But I'll just say a little now and then hopefully pick up a bit at the end. This is the first time Abraham's mentioned in Hebrews. It's not the last time. You know that. We talked about it a few weeks ago. You, you come to chapters 11 and 12, way down the road in Hebrews, and the pastor there towards the end of the sermon is persistently urging his hearers to have faith. And there you can read about Abraham in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. We've read this already in, in a couple weeks ago. It says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. With Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For verse 10, Hebrews 11 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That is, he was looking forward to the promise. Last week we quoted Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, verse 13, saying that it was the promise to Abraham and his offspring, Paul says significantly for us here, the promise that he would be heir of the world. We mentioned that last week. So what I'm suggesting to you is that the idea behind calling God's children the offspring of Abraham here is that God's children are those who live like Abraham did by faith, looking ahead to the promise. This becomes clearer and clearer as we come towards the end of Hebrews. But what it means is, I'm going to take one more step here and say to you that the offspring of Abraham are all people at all times who have faith. Who live by faith. Who trust the God who made a promise to those who would follow him. I mean, I can't resist here pulling Paul back in again, this time from Galatians, because Paul makes this point loud and clear there, I think, as well. Maybe you remember it when we studied Galatians at Christ the King. It was a while ago, but Paul says, Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. There it is. For Paul, that importantly included Jew and Gentile. There is no difference, Paul says. In Hebrews, you may already realize the, the Jew and Gentile issue just isn't on the radar in Hebrews at all. But the point is the same. That this is everyone who is of faith. Here's Paul again, Galatians 3, verse 26. He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, Paul says in verse 29 of Galatians 3, then, hear this, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ's, the children of God, whom God gave to Christ, 
Again, all one in the same category in Scripture. Got it? You are the offspring of Abraham, Christian. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you are. Just as the original recipients of Hebrews were. Because you are of faith. That's what indicates you're a child of God. Given to Jesus, who is your brother. The point we're making now is, as your brother, Jesus helps you. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Which means now we're focused on our next question, the second question, which is going to take a while. So just relax. He helps the offspring of Abraham. What is the help that Jesus gives us? Or to put it this way, what help do we need <laughs> that Jesus is supplying, right? Verse 15 gets us started because what verse 15 says, if you look there, is that we were slaves. Fundamentally, somehow, the help Jesus gives us is to deliver us from slavery. What is it that has made us slaves, according to verse 15? You see it there. It's death. Or more precisely, it's fear of death. As you see, the pastor says, verse 15, Jesus acted to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What the pastor's claiming, I think, is that our whole lives are lived, all the days of our lives are lived, in the knowledge that in the end we will die. And unless Jesus helps us, that inexorable truth in some way enslaves us. You see, it's not simply the fact of death that the pastor is concerned with here. It's the fact that the fact of death somehow enslaves us. We live in fear of it. Changes how we think about life. Changes how we live life. But now, we've got to be really careful here how we understand this. Lots of commentators, lots of preachers begin at this point, having read them, I know, begin to talk then about the way that our, our certain physical death can cause us fear, may shape the ways we live in the years that we have in terms of being enslaved in fear of that physical death that is to come. I, I certainly don't deny that there are many levels at which we could suggest that fear of death affects us as human beings. But I'm trying to look very carefully here at, at what these verses are actually trying to point to. What is the death that is causing fear in these verses? So that's my question. And backing up from verse 15, in verse 14, if you look at it in your, in your text, we read, it says that, Jesus, the Son is Jesus, has destroyed, the end of the verse, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So now look at this fear of death that the pastor talks about in verse 15, I think has to be connected 
to the power of death that the pastor says is the devil's power in verse 14. This is very challenging to understand. But that's what I want to try to get at. What is the power of death that this pastor is describing that the devil holds? I'd like to suggest to you that it's not the power to end your physical life. It's not that the devil can't be involved in that, honestly, if God allows it. But that's not the thing we actually need to fear, at least according to Jesus. Watch this. <laughs> I'm remembering, I'm thinking about things that Jesus says. Matthew 10, verse 28 you may know, Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy the soul and body in hell. Hmm. Now, I understand that our Lord's talking, warning about the devil there. You see, there's a certain reality of bodily death, and we can easily imagine a kind of fear that comes from that reality. But then there's something that, beyond that, and the book of Revelation refers to this as the second death. I actually think that that's the thing that we're supposed to fear. Or the thing we do fear, I would say, even if what that looks like for many people in the world is that they simply learn to avoid the issue altogether. I think there is a kind of fear that exerts a real slavery on men and women, even if they deny that. And what I'd try to say, if we had more time to explain it, is that it's a fear of death following death if I may put it that way. And in some way, the devil's involved in that. Jesus says, I think he's the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, even as he himself is destined to go there too. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following. This is the context of the final judgment. And John is writing in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. John writes, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead. You hear John there? Death has already happened. John sees the dead. Great and small. Standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. John says, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't think that our physical death is the death 
that's primarily in view for the pastor writing Hebrews. When Jesus prays, later in Hebrews we read about this, when Jesus prays to the Father to deliver him from death, he doesn't mean, don't send me to the cross. This death, physical death, wasn't the death primarily in view for Jesus ever. It wasn't the death that was primarily in view for John writing Revelation either. Let me give you one other passage from Revelation to illustrate what I think Hebrews is trying to talk about here. This is Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 to 11. This is the letter to the church in Smyrna, if you know this part of the Bible at all. Here's what it says, Revelation 2 verse 10. This is Jesus speaking and he says... Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, think about what the devil's doing here. That you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Then, listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Be faithful unto death. Physical death and I will give you the crown of life. And then he says in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's Revelation 2, verse 11. So here we are now. Hebrews chapter 2. He helps the offspring of Abraham. How? <laughs> by destroying the one who has the power of death. What power? What is that power? What, how can we describe that? We know it's not the ultimate eternal power of God who rules all life and death. So what is it? What's the power of death here? Here's my answer. It's incredibly hard to define this. This is the best shot I can give you. It's the only real power the devil has. It is the power to lead you, to draw you to the second death. To use the language of Revelation. I think this is describing the power the devil has to keep you in sin. To tempt you to sin. To test you. In some cases to do that through suffering. Christian, the devil, you see, the devil wants you to sin and to keep on sinning. He wants you to doubt the trustworthiness of the Lord. He wants you to doubt the promise of, that you live by faith to see. He wants you to turn away from the Lord when trial and temptation comes. He wants you to doubt the promises of God. Why? That's his power his power to bring you to death. Most of all, I think he wants you to not repent for any of that. Why? Because the only reason anybody's thrown ultimately into the lake of fire described in Revelation 21, if you read it there, is because of what they've done, their own sin. The devil knows that. That's what's written in the book of death. It's the record of our sin, your sin. And all the devil can do is fight to keep you sinning. To keep you away from the one who forgives sin. 
the one who can write your name in the book of life. Does that make sense? So you don't repent. You don't do what Jesus says in Revelation 2, which is be faithful unto death. That's the devil's power of death, I think. I think that's what we're describing here. So that when it says Jesus Christ destroys the one who has the power of death in verse 14, it doesn't mean that the offspring of Abraham now don't die a physical death. They do. Every one of us in this room will die physically. We're no different from those living in the first century or any century in that regard. Being among the offspring of Abraham doesn't mean you'll be spared from physical death. You know that. It doesn't even mean you'll be spared from a painful physical death necessarily. Or that you won't suffer. Or something like that. No, this isn't ultimately about physical death. Is what I'm trying to say to you. Because it's not physical death that holds the greatest fear. It's the death in sin, you see? It's death in sin. It's the death that comes eternally as a result of sin. That's the death of which I think, as I understand it, physical death is the symbol Death in this world reminds us of the reality of sin and its catastrophic eternal consequences. Which makes sense. You remember Genesis 2 because it was through sin that death entered the world, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, the Lord said to Adam in Genesis 2 verse 17. And they did die that day. Even though they didn't die physically. See? Now, of course, they would die physically, too, as part of what sin wrought. But there's a death beyond death. By man came death, Paul writes, because of sin. And thus, no longer can we enjoy life with God. Unless that sin can be taken away. Unless the only lethal weapon in the devil's arsenal is disabled. How can that happen? What's the help then? What's the help? If this definition of death, if this understanding of death is what I think is going on here, what's the help the son gives to the offering, the offspring of Abraham? You see, the answer is he dies to defeat death. He becomes a man. It's the only way it can work, evidently. Do you notice that in verse 17? Look at verse 17 of our text. Therefore, he, the son, who is Jesus, the son had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Had to be. Verse 14 says something similar to that. Since therefore the children, that is, the, remember, the children of God, the ones God has given to Jesus, since the children share in flesh and blood, meaning the frail human beings that are subject to death now, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The son took 
on the human condition fully, completely. He shared fully in the children's humanity. How does verse 9 put it of chapter 2? So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's why God becomes a man, brothers and sisters. There's a clear point of that made in the rest of verse 14 that through death he took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death the death beyond death that is the devil so our ultimate question then if if you're tracking with me which i know is not easy but if you are the ultimate question then is what is it about this death that Jesus dies that accomplishes that? Right? How is it that his death as a human being renders null the power of the devil here? If I'm right about what I'm defining as the power of the devil, the answer to that has to be in the rest of verse 17 of our text. It's because by that death that defeats, destroys the one who has the power of death. It's because that death is how Jesus becomes a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, verse 17 says. And why is that what he becomes? Here it is, the end of verse 17. He becomes our high priest, it says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That disarms the devil. Now, time's running out. We're still in the middle of this, like thick in the middle of this. So I'm just going to move quickly here. The point is this. Only one who's fully human can make propitiation for the sins of the people, the offspring of Abraham, the children of God. Verse 17 says, Jesus became our high priest. Why? What do high priests do in the Old Testament? They make sin offerings for the people so that their sins can be forgiven. Or at least so that... It's the symbol of their sins being forgiven. I mean, we'll come to that later in Hebrews. <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. The key is, why did the Son have to become a human being like us in order to be a high priest for us? And the answer is, ultimately, because Jesus is distinct from those Old Testament high priests in this way. Those high priests offered other sacrifices to deal with sin, including their own. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus offers himself for the sins of others. Not for his own sins, because he never sinned. And when he does that, the power of the devil defeated. Hebrews 7, verse 27 says, He has not need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's Hebrews 7. You see, when he does that, when he offers up himself, the ESV says in verse 17 of our chapter, Jesus makes propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a hotly debated term to translate. And I don't think we need to be too caught up in the debate. Scholars debate the meaning of the word. Some of you may have translations that use another word, namely, another word that's probably unfamiliar to you, expiation. 
right? You may have a translation that says that instead of the word propitiation. You may have a translation that says atonement. I think they're all right in a way. You see, the differentiation is subtle, but it matters. The term expiation is something that focuses on the covering over, the removal of sin. The word propitiation focuses on satisfying in some way the wrath against sin that comes from the holy God. I want to affirm that God does have wrath against sin. It's a real thing. We know that from the Old and New Testament alike. But as I see it, we don't have to go with an either-or thing here in verse 17. In the Old Testament, you see, if sins aren't expiated, if they aren't removed somehow, at least symbolically, if they aren't wiped away, then the result is God pours out his holy and just wrath on those who have transgressed. I mean, that's just the way it works. So I just think the point here in verse 17 is that the death of the Son is Jesus. The death that destroys the one who has the power of death did so because it fully atones for our sin. It covers our sin. It removes our sin. And in doing so, it satisfies the holy wrath of God against them. It's gone. Now, I'll have a lot more to say about all that, but what difference does that make in your lives, brothers and sisters? Well, use the language of verse 15. It means you're delivered. It means you no longer live in fear of death. The death beyond death. Instead, how do you live? I do think this is the opposite. Instead, you live in faith. You live trusting a promise. Assurance of things hoped for, things not seen. We can live differently now because of what we no longer fear. That's my argument. Just think about that. You live differently knowing that your sins are forgiven, do you not? I hope you do. I hope you relate to God and to your family and to your neighbor and you think about life fundamentally differently knowing this truth. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 and following, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death, Paul says is sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes that away. Hebrews 9 verse 26 says, 9.26, He has appeared once for all to put away sin. Hear it? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, physical death, and after that comes judgment, second death, potentially. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, praise the Lord, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Or as Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life.
That's it. We're on our the just rapid fire now. The third question we have this morning, where and when does Jesus then help us? That's the help. Where do we get it? How does it help us? What I see in our text is, of course, Jesus helped us as he lived and died as a man for our sin. All of that, though, is so that Jesus can help us now, right? In particular, whenever and wherever you are tempted, tested. Here we consider verse 18, where the pastor writes, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Tempted by whom, dear friends? Do you see? Do you see the connection? Not by God. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Our adversary is the same one who tempted our Lord. But in this, we have Jesus' strong support, the pastor says, for he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He knows what it is to be tempted and to suffer. One commentator writes, Jesus' resistance of all temptation demonstrates that he knows the full force of it in a manner that we who've not withstood it to the end cannot know. Temptations and trials will come. We will feel the pull to give up. Hear this. The pastor's primary concern is that with the pressures of the world that could lead his hearers to withdraw their loyalty, to fall away from their faith, the pastor asserts Jesus Christ was faithful. He didn't let the severe opposition that culminated in the suffering of the cross deter him from the obedience to the divine will of his father. The testing that reached its climax at the cross is over, but the benefit of that obedient suffering continues to be available for you. Jesus knows what you face. Jesus knows what you feel like when testing and trial and temptation comes into your life, and he will give you what you need to endure to the end, Christian. Do you believe that? Because what's the answer to our fourth question? You see, why? Why does he help the offspring of Abraham? Why do all that? Why does a son who is Jesus help the children of God? Why does he become a man in order to die? Why does he help us now, those who are being tempted? We've already talked about this in previous weeks, but let me remind it of, for you once again. It's back in chapter 2, verse 10. It's because he's bringing us to glory. The Son does what the Son does because it's the Father's will. Remember, it was fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect. Jesus is the pioneer. He is the one who goes before. He is the one who prepares the way. The verb that's translated help in our verse 16, he helps the offspring of Abraham. Do you know what that verb usually means? It means to grab means to take hold and bring along the son as Jesus, the pioneer of your salvation. Do you know what he does? He grabs you because you're his. The father gave you to him and he's going to hold you and bring you all the way to himself. Remember chapter 1 verse 14, our pastor says, are they not, speaking of angels, are they not all sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. 
It's you and me. At the end of the day, there's only one way to answer this why question, dear friends. It's because he's committed to bringing about what was promised. Committed to it. This is verses 6 to 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. (laughs) Of which we're speaking. It has been testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.